everyone, and welcome to another episode of the A to Z of Men's Health. Tony Shebeki with you. Thank you for joining us. A big show coming your way here on Good Health Radio. And we're going to talk to Sof Andrikopoulos from the Diabetes Foundation about a study that came out that says Australian men are the third most obese in the world. We'll find out why and how we can change that very shortly. We'll also catch up with our resident physio, Ian Tran, to talk about physio matters and the like and getting your body ready for going back to regular sport. We'll also have a chat to Cameron Vanden Dungan, our sleep expert, to talk about uh, that and devices that'll help us sleep better or do they? We'll find out whether they work or not very shortly with Cam. All that to come right here on the A to Z of Men's Health. off with a having a look at a study that came out a, a few weeks ago saying that Australian men are the third fattest in the world after the US and Chile middle-aged men most at risk this new research has found obesity quite ripe here in Australia and that obviously has a lot of health issues around it we're going to have a chat to a man who is the CEO and past president of the Australian Diabetes Society which of course is the peak national medical and scientific body here in Australia for diabetes. His name is Sof Andrikopoulos, and he joins us on the line now. G'day, Sof, how are you? Uh, Tony, thank you very much, and I'm terrifically well, thank you. Great to hear. The dire consequences on our health system, when you see figures in a report like this, they must ring alarm bells all around the country. Yes, they do. Uh, obesity is, is an issue that we have. Uh, our waistlines are growing. Uh, the COVID lockdown certainly hasn't helped uh, in that respect for a lot of us uh, that, uh, uh, you know, we became a little bit more sedentary and we're home so we could enjoy a little bit more our food. So obesity is an issue. It's, I don't want to use the words, it's a growing issue. Uh, Australia does have a very high rate of obesity and overweight. So that 70% that the family study found was for overweight and obese men. Yeah. I think the, the worrying issue to me is the age group, and it, it's no surprise, but it's that age of 35 to 57. 71% of men in that age group are either considered overweight or obese. The level drops to 60% for 25 to 34-year-olds and just 20% for 10 to 14-year-olds. And while those numbers drop, they're still extremely high. Yeah, they are. And you've got to remember that that. Uh, sort of age group that you're talking about is when we're having families, when we're uh, working, uh, when we're looking after uh, our um, professional uh, careers and our families, and you have little time or you don't think about as much as you should be about uh, what your diet and your exercise is doing uh, to your body, and it creeps up on you, really. You know, that's that's what... That's the reality. The reality is that there's not enough hours in the day to say, you know what, I'm going to take three quarters of an hour and go for a walk uh, and, and, and do something for me. The funny thing about it is, is that we're quite a, a healthy and sporting nation in our younger age group. And while we're all working full-time jobs between those ages of 20 to 35, most of us still find time to train for football two nights a week, play on a Saturday 
go and play some tennis, do all that sort of stuff. But it seems that once we get into that retirement phase of our sporting life, that sort of post 35 to 40, that maybe we feel that we've done so much in those 15 years beforehand that we probably enjoy relaxing just a little bit too much. Uh, well, enjoy relaxing, but you also find, you probably also find other things that take up your time. You know, that's when your kids are a little bit older. So, you know, as we discussed before we came onto air, you know, you're taking your, your kids to Auskid, for instance, or you're taking your yeah. kids to basketball. Certainly for me, you know, I was really busy at that period of time because, you know, uh, I was taking my, my son to Auskick, I was taking my daughter to basketball, to netball. Uh, there were other uh, extracurricular activities that had to be uh, taken care of with the kids. So, you know, yes, you're right, but, you know, you're all also a little bit, um, your time, your, your uh, discretionary time is taken up by these other commitments that you have. So you need to, uh, in a way, quarantine, uh, to use a term uh, that's very... Um, uh, Familiar with us. <laughs> you need to quarantine some time for yourself. Yeah. And you need to sit there and say, you know what, I'm not going to do anything other than for me, for this half hour or three quarters of an hour where I'm going to walk or I'm going to look after my health. I think that's, that's really critical, both from a mental point of view, but also from a physical point of view. We spoke to our dietitian last week, Sof, about this uh, situation. And her suggestion was that we just need to change one or two things in our diet. Don't go for a radical overhaul right. so, because we probably won't stick to it. But if absolutely. we add, if we add a couple of pieces of fruit to our diet a day, a couple more vegetables, a carrot, whatever it might be, if we take out a meat pie and maybe replace it with a, a steak sandwich instead, that sort of stuff can take a major benefit on us. Yeah. So let me, let me just sort of say a couple of things here, which is really, really important. The first thing is, Let's try and eliminate those discretionary um, uh, calories. You know, instead of having a full-strength uh, Coke or Pepsi or, or soft drink, have uh, the diet variety or have water. Yeah, that, that's great. Don't have the full cake. Have a slice of it. Don't have half a packet of Tim Tams. Have one of those. Right? Yeah. Now, I give a lot of talks to GPs as my role as... Uh, CEO of Australian Diabetes Society, and I am responsible for the obesity management algorithm uh, for Australia. And every time I ask GPs, what's the best diet for your uh, patient with uh, obesity or diabetes and obesity? What's the best diet? And they come up with all these things about, you know, oh, the low carb diet, the paleo diet. Uh, the uh, Cambridge diet, the Atkins diet. And I said, no, no, no. The best diet for your patient is the one that they can adhere to. Yes, correct. And we have to take into account not only what they can adhere to, but also their socioeconomic status, their cultural background, their financial uh, situation, their family situation. And I'll give you an example. You cannot say to a person from India not to eat rice. Oh, go on to the Mediterranean diet. Go on to our diet, on to yeah. the Mediterranean diet. That's nuts. Yeah. You know, culturally, rice is very important to them. But you can't say, instead of having a hit um, uh, a plate of rice, have a smaller portion of it. 
Yeah. You know, I give the example of, you know, I go over to my mother-in-law's and she puts this pasta, this humongous mountain of pasta, <laughs> and I cut it in half and I eat half of it. Yeah. And you know what she does? You know what she does? She gets what's, upset. What's wrong with him? Yes. There's nothing wrong with him. <laughs> Don't you love me anymore? <laughs> yeah, that's right. What's wrong with him? Says to her daughter, what's wrong? What have you done? Why are you upset him? But, you know, um, in, in all seriousness, I think the diet that you can adhere to is the one that's the best for you. Yeah. And, and let's just keep, keep it that simple, as you just said uh, uh, at the beginning of this of this part of the conversation. Let's just keep it simple. Let's adhere to it. Let's eat less. Let's cut away all the other uh, discretionary um, calories that, that can creep into our into our diet. Yeah, exactly right. And we know that one of the, uh, the big issues about obesity and, and overweight, being overweight, is diabetes type 2. Correct. Uh, and Australia has a fair proportion of its people who are yeah. suffering that at the moment. Yes. So in Australia, we know on the National Diabetes Services Scheme, there's about 1.3 million people with diabetes. There's about half a million that we think are out there that have diabetes and not yet diagnosed. Out of those 1.3 million with diabetes in total, 1.2 million have type 2 diabetes. Now, so type 130. There's about 130,000 people with type 1 diabetes. Just before we go further on that, let's explain yeah. the difference. Type 2 is an acquired diabetes? No. Okay. They're both uh, on, the, on, the, on the insulin spectrum. So let me just explain to you and the audience who are listening to us. Type 1 diabetes is uh, your body has no ability to produce and secrete insulin. Yep. For whatever reason that may be. In type 2 diabetes, your body produces insulin and secretes it, but it's not enough to be able to regulate the blood glucose levels. And that is genetically determined. So type 2 diabetes is a genetic disease that is revealed in a permissive uh, obesogenic environment. So you know, if you put on too much weight, if you're not exercising enough, then, and you have the genetic predisposition, then type 2 diabetes is revealed. Okay, so the larger you are, the more insulin you require, and your correct. body's not able to produce that much insulin, correct. then you have the issue. That's correct. So okay. the larger you are, and if your body is not able to, for whatever reason, genetic reason, is not able to keep up the insulin secretion, then you get diabetes. Yeah. So, yes, lifestyle plays a really critical role in type 2 diabetes, but the underlying cause is genetic. Yeah. Okay. Right? So, that, that makes sense. Yeah. So that's why when I started in diabetes in 1989, 30 years ago, we used to call type 2 diabetes adult onset. You know, where yeah. you're, you're old, old people. Old people go, what are you talking about? Old people get diabetes. 30 years down the track, you're seeing people in their 30s and 40s getting diabetes. All that has happened is that because we're getting fatter, the curve has shifted to the left. Yep. and you're seeing the diabetes um, earlier. These people probably would have got diabetes in their 70s, but getting it in their 40s. As we said, the uh, Australian Diabetes Society is uh, the peak national medical and scientific body for Australian diabetes. And how are we going in regards to research in diabetes? Are we getting closer to, I don't know, is finding a cure the right word? 
Look, uh, I'd, I'd like to talk about managing diabetes better. I, I yeah, think, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, to say we're going to cure diabetes uh, is giving people uh, a sense of hope that may not necessarily transpire yep. in the next five or ten years. But we're certainly a lot more uh, uh, acute, a lot more acutely aware of diabetes, and we can manage the disease a lot better. So the classes of drugs that are available to us uh, are, are more at the moment. We understand the interaction between the environment and the genetics a little bit more. So we understand that you know you shouldn't be eating sugar, you shouldn't be exercising, and you should be doing all the right things. Plus, taking your your medications to be able to control your blood uh, glucose levels. So for me, it's it's it, we've had tremendous progress. We continue to learn more. Australia is at the forefront of clinical and basic research in diabetes. I must say, we are up there with the best in the world. Yeah. Fantastic. And uh, we wouldn't expect any different from our medical researchers. We've got a, a fantastic bunch of medical researchers here in Australia, and they do an amazing job in so many different things. When diagnosed with diabetes type 2, I'm sure it'd be a shock to a lot of people that the, when the doctor tells them that that is the case. But it does. It's not a, it's not a death sentence, is it? It's something that is very manageable. Not at all. And, and it shouldn't be seen as as a, oh my God, you know, I've got this, I've got diabetes, you know, you know my whole world uh, is going to collapse. And I don't think that that's uh, necessarily the case that it should be. I think um, if you have the classic symptoms of diabetes, in other words, the four, we talk about the four T's. First, toilet, um, uh, becoming, losing weight without actually uh, wanting to, and then being tired. So if you have those four T's, first going to the toilet too much. Thinner. Uh, and thinner. Yeah. And, and, yeah. I was wondering what that fourth T was in there. Thinner. Thinner and, and tiredness. Yeah. Yeah, polydipsia, polyuria, uh, the Greek terms, because the Greeks obviously invented everything, as you know, Tony. Um, <laughs> then then uh, you should go and get checked. You should go to your GP and get tested. It's very quick and easy to do. Uh, uh, you do a HbA1c test and they can tell you if you have diabetes. If you have diabetes, you know, uh, the first line of, uh, of uh, management of your diabetes is diet and exercise. So, so you know, you can go and see a dietitian uh, and they will put you on a really good plan so that you can lose a little bit of weight. Usually you're a bit uh, on the heavy side. That's why you have yep. diabetes. You lose a little bit of weight. And I always say to people, you know, start exercising and exercise is, is free. You don't have to get a gym membership, you don't have to get fancy equipment, uh, you don't have to, you know, do anything fancy, just a good pair of, of runners, and you can go with your missus, she gets her 10,000 words in, uh, and she gets her, you know, her, her frustrations out, you get to say yes, dear, uh, and you get your exercise, and you get your mental exercises off, so it works out for everybody, you know? <laughs> no, it, it certainly does, I, I'm hearing what you're saying, and, and I'm living proof of that exact thing 12 months ago, my doctor, through a regular uh, blood test that I have every year, found out that my diabetes number, I think was right on the edge, it was 7.2, is that right on yes, the line? Yes, 7.2 is right on the line yep. for so a fasting he, blood glucose, yes. Exactly, so he said to me at the time, he said, right, 
I'm not going to put you on medication, but I'm going to give you an opportunity here to change your lifestyle, lose a bit of weight, change what you eat, come back to me and we'll see what we can do. And three months ago, I went back, we took another blood test and I'd gone from 7.2 down to 5.6. And he was extremely shocked. He said, but that is just bloody marvellous. He said, you're out of the woods now. Stay the way you're going. Correct. I've lost, I've only, and, and honestly, I've lost only eight kilos of weight. So I haven't lost a, a massive amount of weight, but I've just changed the way that I eat. Correct. And that has made such a difference. Absolutely. And let me just tell you, eight kilos is, is enough to make, we know that five kilos is enough to make a big difference yep. to a person's metabolism. So eight kilos, you're doing terrific. Keep up the great work. Uh, ensure that you continue to, to maintain a really healthy and good uh, dietary uh, lifestyle and also exercises, as I said. Yeah. I think it's important. The exercise is more about, it's not more, uh, as much about weight loss exercise. Exercise is more uh, about your cardiovascular uh, system, exercise the heart, yep. uh, so you're healthy, and also for your mind. Uh, yeah. yeah, exercise is good for your mental, uh, mental health. Now, there's been at least three days a week where I've been getting my dose of 10,000 words as well. So, yes, good, excellent, good. <laughs> and that's the way, you know, we've got to keep it, we've got to keep it all together there. You know, we all have to keep it all together. Yeah. No, we should. Uh, just finally, off before we let you go, uh, last weekend, Saturday, the 14th of November, the world celebrated World Diabetes Day 2020. Was, uh, just looking at the, uh, the website, there was of Diabetes Australia. There's some amazing ways that uh, countries celebrated this uh, this day. Yeah, and uh, uh, you know people uh, line up uh, all sorts of uh, monuments or buildings in blue. So blue is um, the colour for the International Diabetes Federation. I know in Victoria we lit up Cadenia Park uh, yeah. in 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 blue. Uh, we celebrated this year the role of the nurse and. You know, the nurses and our diabetes educators are wonderful. And they do such a marvellous job uh, in, in uh, helping people with their diabetes, uh, in providing support and education for people with diabetes. So they are you know, a really critical uh, component of the multidisciplinary team uh, to help people with diabetes. Uh, just finally, Sof, has COVID caused a little bit of a worry in the diabetes world in regards to people not going and having checks for the past six months? Yeah, so we know, particularly in Victoria, uh, where we had, as you know, the lockdown for uh, so long, we know that um, uh, GP appointments had dropped by as much as uh, 40%. We know that pathology testing for diabetes had dropped significantly. It's actually picked up now uh, as we've come out of COVID, but now we're seeing the consequences of that six, eight-month closure with um, rates of foot disease, foot ulceration and amputation going a little bit higher than what we would have expected normally. So I'm hoping, I'm actually hoping that, and I'm encouraging everybody to go and see their GP, go and see their diabetes health professional to get themselves checked out. This is really important so we can prevent those complications. So if you're feeling more tired than you have been before, if you're looking a little bit thinner than you have been before, you're feeling thirsty or going to the toilet, yeah. Go to the doctors, get a simple check, get on top of it, folks. We want you around for another 40 or 50 years. We don't want to be losing people off something from something that could have been an easy, easy fix. So thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, here's to 2021. Thank you.
thank you, Tony, and go Tigers, and I hope that we can win another one in 2021. A man very close to my heart. Soft Andrew Coppola is joining us here on the A to Z of Men's Health. We'll have more in just a tick. All right, Good Health Radio, Tony Shebecki with you on the A to Z of Men's Health. And we're talking sleep with our man, Cameron Vandendungen, who joins us now. Hello, Cameron. How are you? Good. Thank you very much, Tony Shebecki. I'm looking forward to today's conversation. I've done a little bit of research into a couple of things. You've uh, you've forced me to think about some areas that um, that I've had some knowledge about, but I wanted to give some deeper insights. So I'm, I'm looking forward to today's discussion. Well, today's discussion is titled Things That Help You Sleep. Now, we're going to talk as much as we can today, and we're, we're restricted in our time, so this may end up being a two-parter. Gee whiz, it could even be a three-parter because there's so much out there that help us sleep. But uh, namingly, just a few things, our mattress, our pillows, our bedding clothes, our sleep-assisting things, whether it be music in the background. What do we do before we go to sleep? Do we yep. what, do, Should we look at our iPad right up until we go to sleep or do we turn <laughs> it off an hour? But all that sort of stuff. We're going to try and cover even to an extent. And if you don't feel comfortable talking as much about this topic, I'm more than happy to try and bring someone else in to our conversation, but even medication that helps us. Yeah. Sleep well. no, I've actually got some insights into a few of those, which that I didn't have to dig into that because a lot of the researchers I get to deal with um, have given me some good insights. So I'll look, Shebex, I'm happy to go into any topic, mate. And if, <clears throat> if we ever look like it's outside my bounds and my abilities, I'll certainly put my hand up. And one thing I will do from the outset though, Shebex, is probably good to disclose my relationships yes. in the industry to make it nice and clear. So uh, for those that are listening for the first time to this segment, um, I'm a non-executive director and shareholder of the 40 Winks group of companies. So the betting retailer that 98% of all Australians know and love, then that's from our recent brand tracking. So we've got some good exposure out there. And I'm also the chief executive officer of a, a company developing techno technology in sleep diagnostic systems. So to help determine what your body does through the course of a night to provide that data to researchers to work with. One of the good things though, Shebex, is as part of 40 Winks and one of the, the deep things about that company in particular, we don't own any of the product we sell. We are completely independent of every bit of product through our stores, which means if I do talk about things, there's no kickbacks to me, there's no benefit to me through 40 Winks, and, and I'm not gonna be sitting here spruiking on behalf of any products. I'm gonna give you what the data tells me, yep, what cool. the scientists tell me. So I wanted that disclosure up front, just because um, you know it, there's a lot of people giving information out there. And one thing that I'm very passionate about at the moment is trying to dispel a lot of the misinformation that is going around about sleep because there are a lot of claims you see on the internet right now that have no basis in any scientific research or validation. So hopefully we can dispel some myths and maybe help people find their path to a better night's sleep. Yep, exactly right. And I'm glad that you did that disclosure because you did so much better than I would have. There's no doubt about that. So last week or two weeks ago, we spoke about why sleep is so important for our body. So as I said, this week, we're going to start talking about how we can find that sleep and how we can get that better sleep and i suppose the most important thing about sleep has to be the mattress doesn't it with without well, a doubt you, you would say i i would say yes but i'm i i put a very big disclaimer on that because okay. when you're talking about the most important part that is so subjective and there are so many elements to it and it's so personal um there is environmental factors there's physiological factors there's the um, environmental aesthetics there's the smells the scents the noise the lights um, the surface on which you sleep 
I personally believe is one of the most critical elements of the sleep process, but it could be debated and argued depending on your area of focus and attention. So if it is a major focus, it's no more than 10% of the total sleep environment. It might be the majority, but you're talking about so many little one percenters that add up to a good night's sleep or the opportunity for a good night's sleep. Because we, we start to bring in things like stress and anxiety and other bits and pieces to the everyday life. And we touched on a bit of that last time we spoke, Shebex, yep. about those additional pressures. And there's so much that goes into a good night's sleep. And a lot of it, people know. They actually know. And they, they almost deliberately ignore it only because it's inconvenient to do it properly and look after your sleep. So today, I actually want to talk about some of the, the devices you see. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of things out there, sleep aids, gadgets, adjustments, right. and things that we, we, we brought up. And you know everything from white noise machines you mentioned before, sleep monitoring devices and tracking devices, right through to weighted blankets. That's probably the one that's um, you know most of interest out there at the moment. If you scroll through your Facebook feed, Shebex, you'll see every third ad is either a bed in the box ad and we'll talk yep. about bed in a box as well. Let's talk about that technology as well as um, what, what's the difference between a, a bed in a box and a mattress in a, in a bricks and mortar. That's what we call shops, bricks and mortar yep. site. So a lot to dig into and Shebex, I'll let you lead this conversation, mate, because I'll go down any path you want to. Pillows, sheeting, all that sort of stuff will all come into Well, let's kick off with what you just mentioned there and we'll start off with our sleeping aids in. So there's so many different things that can help us record our sleep, can help us get to sleep. Our watches now are smart watches. They can, they can determine when we effectively go to sleep and when we wake up. I still don't understand how that happens. <laughs> our iPhones can be switched to a sleep mode. We've got a, a little Google Assistant that I can say, hey, Google, sleep time, and she'll tell me what time do I want my alarm to set and then play me some beautiful seaside noise to put me to sleep all that sort of stuff is there what is effective and what isn't okay so rmit university <clears throat> sleep department there was a, a a wonderful researcher out there that led that department russell conduit I, i'm not sure if he's still at rmit at the moment because the professor that oversaw that department has retired recently um, but russell conduit ran a program out at rmit out at bandura campus amongst their sleep researchers i think it's through the school of psychology where they put every single sleep gadget you could find this um, consumer grade. I'm not talking the medical stuff. I'm not talking about the polysomnography machines that you see in a, <clears throat> in a typical sleep lab. I'm talking about the ones that are just available off the shelf um, anywhere you are and the apps that are on your phone. Not one of them is up to standard when you put it up against a polysomnography machine. Now that advice is so two years So explain the polysomnography machine. Okay, this is where you actually go into a sleep lab and they put little electrodes all yep. over your body through the, the center of your body. They put you in a bedroom and they simulate lots of different things. This is how sleep researchers work when we start to get good quality sleep data. There's a lot of challenges around that. And I'll, I can go into detail another time as to why is sleep research in its infancy and what do we need to do to get it to where it probably should yep. need to be in line with other research. That's for another day. But a polysomnography machine is essentially the industry gold standard for sleep diagnostic. And it has to happen in a lab. No, none of us are going to put these machines. I mean, you could technically put it in your house, but who's going to spend that much money, hook themselves up and then have an engineer to drive it through the course of a night or, or to sit there and monitor it afterwards. So a lot of industry standard is to grab these gadgets. And when I say gadgets, I mean, you know, anything that could be like your phone app next to your bed, could be your watch, could be anything that someone's claiming is a sleep diagnostic tool. And then they put it and they te test and measure the results against the polysomnography results. So it has to be done in a test environment. Now, when that's been done before, 
nothing that I have seen. Now, again, that's two years old, the information I'm giving you. So I haven't seen if any of the new stuff has gone up against it. And, and I'll take that as I'm putting that in my little disclaimer to get me out of jail later on if someone yep. does call me out on that. But it's not a gold standard. Having said that, it doesn't mean it's not useful. So information that puts you to bed at the right time and to wake up. That was one thing we talked about previously. Routine is your friend. <clears throat> as I said, if it's a Monday or a Sunday, if you go to bed at the same time every night, it, it, that is what you should be aiming for. So the device that says, Shebex, time for bed, your bedtime is 10 o'clock at night. It gives you the half an hour warning, which would generally mean put your phone away, put your blue screens away. We like it an hour, but if you can give us half an hour with no blue, blue screen, blue screen is TVs, iPads, iPhones, watches, yeah. anything that emits blue light, you want to take out of your life for that last half hour and ideally hour before you go to bed. So those sorts of apps for reminder and routine, very, very good because it helps you get into a pattern and a reminder and that's great. Let's talk about how they get those diagnostics though. On your watch, they'll often use uh, what's called an accelerometer. So they'll be measuring how much you toss and turn if you leave your watch on as you sleep through the course of a night. The ones on your phone, they use a microphone. They listen to noises in the room. So again, how um, reliable is that information when it's actually done on a microphone? And the other bit that I add to that, Shebex, is, well, if you've got your phone next to your bed, how likely are you to actually look at the thing and therefore put more blue light into your system? So there's so many varying elements to that answer. So realistically, medical grade, there is nothing con consumer available that is medical grade or, or good enough and reliable enough for us to be used by sleep researchers. It is good in terms of getting into a routine, but at the same time, there are some negatives involved with it. Again, some people don't like microphones being listened to. I mean, this is a reality. We are being listened to every day on these phones, watches and everything else. The other thing also here, Cam, is it's like a lot of things. It's what works for you as well. Now, while you say that nothing's been proven to be top of the line stuff, if it works for you, then it's a good thing. It is. It is. And that, that is the other subjective element of this. So one thing we talk about, and let's go back to the mattress. We'll bring it back to the mattress. Um, 40 Winks has a system called Bedmatch. I've disclosed my relationship with 40 Winks, but I'm going to tell you why I went and got Bedmatch because it wasn't our system. It was in another retailer. It took me five years to get that system. I traveled the world for a decade looking for diagnostic systems, ones that were validated, not ones that were gimmicky. If you, the more you get to know me in this world, Shebex, the more you realize I hate gimmicks. I like to be able to point to third-party independent yeah. research and say, this is works because of this research body has done this paper, it's been peer reviewed, et cetera, et cetera. The only diagnostic system I could find that actually had been benchmarked against sleep science was this one system. And the amount that goes into that in terms of body shape, size, weight, all sorts of different parameters, how you like to sleep and other bits and pieces. But even at the end of all those diagnostic shebeks, there is an element of comfort being subjective. So what you find comfortable is very different to what I'll find comfortable. Yeah. And then there's even, um, there's variations in ethnicity as well. So you'll find people that, that um, let's say from a Chinese background, Chinese heritage, this is a generalized statement, but culturally they prefer to sleep on a very firm surface. They prefer to. Now we can tell them what the right support under their body is, but at the end of the day, comfort is subjective, support is scientific. So to that point and bringing that back in, yes, if it helps you sleep better, whatever you need that helps you sleep better, we're going to say, keep doing it. Some people like white noise. Some people like a bit of music in the background. But at the same time, there are circumstances and occasions where we think things are working for us, but they may not be. And that's that little gray area we've got to play in. And the big one is 
the phone, the blue light. I, I cannot stress it enough. I am as guilty as the next person of using my phone as an alarm clock. And the first thing I reach for in the morning is my phone. The last thing I look at before I go to bed is my phone. But even now, mate, as I look at my own sleep patterns, I am pushing it further and further out of my life because I understand the, the ramifications it has on yeah. the quality of my sleep. I liked, you mentioned before in the sentence quickly, keeping in sync with your body and going to bed the same time, waking up the same time. A lot of things in this can be extremely helpful for us. Uh, sleeping in, is sleeping in useful for us or not useful? Again, this is a, a, I sound so vague with all my answers, Shebex, but it is because it's such a gray area. Yeah. You cannot catch up on sleep. So you can't catch up on sleep. So you if can't I only have four hours sleep tonight and I have 12 hours tomorrow, I'm not going to say, well, I've got an average of eight. No, that does not work that way. Okay. But you should let your body sleep. If you are, if you are sleeping well and healthily, Shebex, and you're, you're into a rhythm, you will not need an alarm clock. You won't. Your body, and this is why we get you into that pattern. And, you know, it, people that um, talk about training and other and diet, if you, can, if you can do the same thing for three weeks, you set a pattern and your body starts to follow that pattern. Sleep is identical. The more you can get into routine, you will not naturally need um, alarm clocks or anything else. Your body will wake up at the same time every day. It'll get tired at the same time every day. But we've all been breaking that cycle. We're all doing it, you know, to get through a... Um, uh, an exam the next day to get that report in for work to watch that Formula One Grand Prix in our case Shebex or MotoGP event or the Ashes or Tour de France or whatever we do through the middle of winter to watch European sport we're actually doing damage to that that rhythm we're, we're putting our body outside of it so anything we can do to naturally continue that momentum and that same pattern is actually going to be good for us. What about napping, Cam? Is especially after dinner, where you know you've had a long day and you feel you're sitting on the couch, you're watching a bit of telly, and it's seven thirty, and you just close your eyes and you fall asleep. Is that beneficial for us to get an hour sleep before we're meant to get our proper sleep? There's a lot of material out about napping, and we we touched on a little bit last time we spoke about the siesta in the afternoon, and that yeah. there's a natural lull in the in the system, in the body system, um, the physiology of, of of a human in an afternoon, which is naturally when we lose that energy. And you're sitting at your desk. We all know it. Two thirty, three o'clock in the afternoon, whether you're at school or at your desk at work, and you reach for the snacks or you go for a coffee just to pep yourself up, or you get that Coca Cola or whatever you you need just to get the caffeine into your system. And a nap, um, if it's a short nap, can be beneficial at that time of day. Later in the night, as you get closer to bed, it will do damage to your ability to fall asleep. You should be able to get into bed and be asleep within 15 minutes. If you fall asleep immediately, you've probably got a problem on your sleep. If you take too long to go to sleep, it's also outside. It's probably, you know, 10 to 15 minutes should be a natural time for you to go to sleep. Um, and napping <clears throat> does impact your ability to go to sleep if it's too late in the day. Okay, no, that makes sense. The other thing too that, and I'm sure there's so many people out there that are listening to this that suffer exactly the same thing. And when you get to 53 years of age, your body changes and needs to do different things. So I tend to go to the toilet a couple of times a night, but I tend to go to the toilet at just about the same time every night. If I wake up and look at the clock, it'll be three between 3 and 3.15, 3.20 every night. It's regularity. So that one, 
I'm not going to be able to tell you how to stop going to the toilet in the middle of the night because that's not an area that I have any level of expertise or have ever dug into. What I can talk to you about is what is the process you go through when you go though? Do you use a phone to light your way? Do you walk in the dark? Like how do you? Yep, good point. No, I'll walk in the dark and keep the light off when I get to the toilet. And that is a benefit. So these are the things you've got to think about in that situation. So make sure when you, if you do know that's a pattern, and again, you, you, if you if you are worried about it, anyone listening in is worried about something like this, then please go and see a medical professional, have a chat to them yeah. about it. I'm not going to give you advice on that. What I am going to talk about is make sure you limit the damage it does to your sleep and ability to fall back asleep when you get back into bed. So keep lights away from you. Keep anything stimulant away from you. I mean, we've all done it as well in those really hot nights when you go to get a drink, yeah. you know, when you are... You wake up and I had one last night. It was quite a warm night. Had the fan on in my room, but I still got up in the middle of the night needing a drink. Make sure it's something that's not going to stimulate your system, not sugary, not anything else that's going to impact. That's where you've just got to be um, be smart about it. But Shebek, sounds like you're doing all the right things, mate. Keeping the lights off, not stimulating the body. So you probably fall asleep pretty quickly after you go back to bed. Very much so, yeah, which is, which is a major asset. Having said that, I do hit my lee or my head or something on something as I'm walking down the hallway to get to the toilet but that's another thing we're sort of running out of time we're down around about five or so minutes left so let's just touch on another topic and i want to talk to you about what we can do during the day to help us sleep at night is there things that yeah there is exercise our exposure to light all that sort of stuff does that help us get a better night's sleep It does indeed. And there's a lot of research around this. What I'm going to do is give a shout out to the Sleep Health Foundation. If you want to get some tips and tricks uh, from one of the best in the business, this is an arm to the side of the Australasian Sleep Association, which is all of our sleep professionals have a a peak body. They've got the Sleep Health Foundation that's their advocacy body. Wonderful tips and tricks sheets on that. So sleephealth.org.au. I think it's shf.org.au. Check it out. Really, really good with the materials there. Um, I'm a big fan. I'm a member of the Sleep Health Foundation. So great there. During the day, um, the big ones, the big ones, no caffeine after, say, midday. It takes about eight or nine hours to clear your system. No caffeine after midday? Well, or one o'clock, whatever time your bedtime is, take about eight hours before it. Once you get into this pattern, Shebex, once you start sleeping properly, go back and test it. I'm someone that likes to test yeah, and yeah, measure yeah. things. You will find that if you drink, a, a, after you've got your body used to it and you're starting to rid your system of, of getting used to this caffeine that we keep firing in late in the day, you will notice that the moment you have a coffee or a soft drink or whatever it is, that night you will not go to sleep well. You will struggle. Yeah. So now we mentioned, you mentioned coffee, but tea very much has caffeine in it as well, doesn't it? It, it? Well, some teas. So there's a lot of, if you like your hot drink in the afternoon, look at the ones that don't have caffeine in them. Try and make sure that's what you've got. I love a peppermint tea in the afternoon. Yeah. The old Peter Brock used to do, got me yeah, on the yeah, peppermint yeah. tea back in the day. He loved it, uh, Brocky. But um, that's one thing I do because I do love a hot drink. And so late in the day, I will move to a, a peppermint tea, obviously one that has no caffeine in it or a green tea. They're, they're yeah. great. You know, um, so if you like your hot drinks, waters are always good. Hydrate well through a day and then start to, as you get to the end of your day, finish your work day, everything else, pull blue light out of your life as much as you can. So if you've got an ability, um, the CRC on alertness, the Cooperative Research Centre on alertness has just wrapped up, but it was, you know, seven odd years of research into um, uh, people in large scale workforces and how to get the most productivity and other bits and pieces. And one thing they did, they did this piece with a, a company, a lighting company called Versalux. You can go and you can see all this. It was all validated independently. It's fantastic. 
they're starting to develop lights now that put blue light in during the day to ensure that you're alert during the day when you need to be. But then at a certain time, naturally pull all the blue light out of those globes, out of those, those lights in your facilities or your houses to naturally start to help you go to sleep. You need your body to cool down when you go to bed. Your core temperature has to drop to be able to go to sleep. Yeah. But don't heat up your bed. If you do have cold feet and you find it hard to go to sleep, put a hot water bottle or something down the bottom near your feet, but don't go for a whole electric blanket. You, know, you don't want to heat yourself up. You don't want to cook yourself when you actually need to cool your body down to go to sleep. So there's a lot of things you can do. Um, noise is huge. Make sure your room is as dark as possible. Ideally, don't have a TV in the bedroom. Have none of those little red dots or lights anywhere. Make sure it is as dark as possible, as quiet as possible. That is not always easy to do when you're, um, you're in a heavy noise area. That's where white noise machines, or if you can't afford one of those, the trusty old fan, the mm. pedestal fan, put it on your room. If you don't like the, the air blowing on you, point it in another direction. Just have that constant noise, that one constant noise that your mind will focus on and it takes away all the other noise in the room. It's one that um, the Australian Institute of Sport do with a lot of their traveling athletes that end up in motels and hotels. They actually send them off with fans to put next to their bed so that they can listen to that white noise no matter where they are. Here's the big one, Shebex. You asked me about, um, about uh, sleeping tablets and pills and other things. Yeah. There are natural things like melatonin you can get. They need to be diagnosed by a doctor and prescribed by a doctor, particularly in children. It can be extremely beneficial for those that have very bad sleep. But again, it has to be medically diagnosed and whatever else. When we start talking about sleeping pills, and there's a lot of traveling, busy executives we know, and a lot of the old male, we're talking about men's health here, you know, dominant male executives, you know, got to fight through it, get on the plane. And what I do yeah. is I pop a sleeping pill so I can get a good night's sleep through the, um, through the flight. I met with the, the Flory Institute a few years ago, probably two or three years ago. And uh, they're out at University of Melbourne, one of the world's biggest brain research centers amazing, amazing group of researchers out at Uni of Melbourne, the Flory Institute. They had shown in science in the lab, um, not on humans, I think it was either rats or it might've been mice, that um, sleeping tablets, the commercially available sleeping tablets that people pop on planes, um, kills all REM sleep in rats. Now, I haven't seen a human trials on that. We have no idea what the long-term ramifications of no REM sleep have for humans. Mm. There's a whole area of concern around that REM sleep, which is the deepest phase, the rapid eye movement sleep, the one we want to get into, the one that comes more at the end of the night, which is why we like uninterrupted night sleep. It's the dreaming phase. It's the, the mental repair phase, like a major part of your transfer of information, your long-term storage memory, other bits and pieces. If you are a regular taker of sleeping tablets, it, it, the science is looking likely it is not going to be good for you long-term. I'm not going to say it's settled because it's still in a very early stage of it. But when I heard that, I was like, thank goodness I've never taken one. And I, and I won't ever take one because I think the ramifications for me, the risk is just too real. Yeah. Mate, we have covered off so much in 20 minutes and we have got, and we haven't even scratched the surface yet, which is fantastic. So a lot more episodes to come of this. Hope you're enjoying it. Cam, thank you for your time again. This week, we look forward to catching up with you in a couple of weeks' time where we'll talk more about how we get ourselves to sleep. Good Health Radio, Tony Shebeki with you, the A to Z of Men's Health, and joining us to have a chat about all things 
skeletal, I think is the word I'm looking for, body-wise, <laughs> muscle-wise, all that sort of stuff, is our resident physio, Ian Tran, from Back in Motion in Braybrook. Hello, Ian, how are you? Hello, Tony. Thank you for having me. How are you? Fantastic, mate. Thank you, and thank you for coming back on. I'm glad I didn't scare you off after our initial chat <laughs> two weeks ago. This week, we're going to have a chat about something that's pretty important because we've all been laid up, especially here in Victoria, We've all been laid up and laid low for a, a, a fair while. And most of us have gone out for a walk and, and maybe the occasional bike ride. But pretty much it's exercise-wise. We haven't been able to go to the gym and all that sort of stuff. So today we're going to focus on getting back into it and how to get our body ready for that extra intake of exercise or physical Ab- sport. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I dropped a little teaser in our last conversation about a Milo of Croton. And uh, this is uh, probably a good point to segue into that, if you're okay for me to talk about Please Milo. Do. Yeah, go so for it. And Milo, we're not talking about the stuff that you mix with no, uh, milk. No, no, okay. not the chocolate milk. Unfortunately, Milo, uh, for him, he was basically the Muhammad Ali of Greco-Roman wrestling oh. in the 6th century BC. He won three uh, ancient Greek Olympic wrestling things. He was just undefeatable, magnificent. And they back then, they were like, Milo, what's your training program? How did you get so strong? And so what he actually did was as he was beginning to train, what he thought he'd do, he was a farmer and he used to have cattle. And so what he did is one day he decided to carry one of the newborn calves on his shoulder and walk the length of his field. And he would do that every day for wow. the next year. As you can imagine, over that year, that calf grew bigger and bigger. And so did his strength. And that's a, probably a really good analogy for us as we go back into exercising, starting off small, so that we can end up not necessarily carrying big bulls on our backs, but having that same strength and winning at whatever we choose to do. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about that today, because like you say, Tony, there are a lot of people out there that are super excited to get back into exercise. And how can we do it safely to avoid injury and what things we need to look at? Yeah, and it's not just exercise. It's actually competitive sport as well. A lot of competitive sport is starting up. I know Senior cricket starts up this week. I think senior baseball in the next couple of weeks. Tennis clubs have reopened again. So those competitions are starting as well. All that summer sport action. So it, it's really hard and really difficult and really concerning to go from zero to hero. That's it. And and, and temper that with the enthusiasm people yeah. have got to get back into doing what they want to do. And, um, and that's where, you know, I want to try and inform people as much as I can, um, ways in which they can get back into doing what they love doing without obviously putting themselves at risk. All right, let's do that. Kick it off for a second. All right. So getting back into exercise if you're, or sport and going back to playing sport, a really good um, sort of yardstick or little rule that you can use is probably go back initially at about 50% of what you were doing. So let's say, let's use the example of cricket. Say in a cricket session, you were bowling, I don't know, 50 balls, 50 balls per session. So when we're getting back to training, just bowl 25, 25 instead. 25 25 at 100% or 25 at 50% as well? So that's very good. So intensity, looking at intensity as well as frequency, that's a really good way. So I'll also reduce the intensity a little bit too. Um, But 
either or, and this is when probably with the nuances of different sports and people's different ages and their abilities and things like that, it's always obviously important to seek the advice of a health professional such as myself. But as a general rule, we want to go to about 50% and only increase by 10 to 20% a week safely to get back to where we are. So, and, and that we sort of then look at how sore you're feeling, how often you're training, what was your base level. And another thing I, I mentioned a little bit last, last time we spoke was something called the acute chronic workload ratio. Mm -hmm. And to break it down into layman's terms, it's basically this fancy little spreadsheet and formula us um, physio nerds have that we ask our clients or the, the athletes that we're working with. And it's like, so Tony, how much training did you do last week or the last sort of month? And then based on that, we can tell you how much you need to do this week to stay in what we call a safe green zone okay. to not put yourself at risk. And so just doing it, building up slowly is the is probably the key. Yeah, and you, you're probably right to the extent that that uh, ambition probably isn't the right word, but that enthusiasm, that excitement just pushes you to go that little bit harder, doesn't it? And, yeah. and especially guys my age now, and, and maybe hopefully a little bit younger than me too, but <laughs> I'll still feel the same, but you're coming up, especially in cricket, good 21, 22, 23-year-old bowlers, and you're seeing mm. them going... And yeah. you, all of a sudden, your body just says, right, yeah, we've, we've got to step up a bit to keep up with these guys, knowing that you can't. Oh, yeah. That'd be pride there, too. A bit of pride there, I reckon, yeah, Tony. And, exactly. Uh, what, did, um, what do I often say to, to my kids? I think the older I get, the better I was. Uh, yes. I, I played hockey a bit myself as a kid, and I remember going back out there and trying to do these reverse tomahawk hits at goals and realising, no, I'm not that age anymore. Yeah. Um, and it is exactly as you say, mate, just tempering that enthusiasm and slowly booting ourselves up is definitely the way to go. And, and, and speaking to that too, the things we want to look at in terms of getting fitter and more resilient is making it a little bit, um, having a mix of types of exercise. And, and generally when we talk about exercise, we want to look at flexibility Obviously, we want to look at strength and power, but then we also want to look at cardiovascular fitness. Yeah. So it's always important, particularly when you're starting up again after a bit of a break, is to try and think of it addressing those three areas. So when we start training and we run a lap or two of the oval, there's a reason for that, isn't there? It's called a warm-up. Exactly. <laughs> exactly, Tones. And uh, that is sometimes some of the, the best thing. And again, there's such a nuance with warm-ups. It's changed a lot in sports science over the last few years. You know, go back 30, 40, 50 years ago, maybe, the warm-up before the game of footy might have been a couple of cigarettes and, uh, you know, a bit of a chin wag with your teammates, maybe. Um, whereas, as you, you probably see now at, um, when watching the footy on the telly, the guys have got their their rubber bands out, the TheraBands and their stretching regimes, and they've all got personalised programs. And, and so it is actually a bit of, a, again, a personalized thing, depending on your sport, your age, your level of ability, what type of warm-up will suit you best for what you want to do. But definitely a stretching regime should be included in there because that is the most important thing. If you're a bowler, let's get our shoulders and our arms and all that sort of stuff stretched. If you're going to do a bit of running because you're having a bat, then let's get our hamstrings and all that sort of stuff because they haven't been properly used for a good deal of time. Absolutely. And, and stretching, 
for sure. But now we've even seen too, just some movements as well. So stretching used to be a very static hold, whereas yeah. now we're looking at more dynamic stretches and more dynamic sort of warm-ups, like the jogger, a couple of laps around the, the oval or the the, the 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 field, whatever where it is that we're playing on. That's been proven to be quite effective as well. We, we're all going to push ourselves just that little bit too hard because that's just what we do. It's in our human nature and it's in our competitive nature to do so. If the pain from what we do gets too unbearable, yep, we 100% uh, should go and see a professional, whether it be a physio or a GP to start off with or whatever that might be, mm -hmm. to get that situation looked at. But we might just have soreness, general soreness from that first couple of weeks of, of playing. I've always had a little bit of an issue in regards to relating hot or cold compress on what I should and should not put that onto. Can you just clarify that for us as to what we should put a heat pack on and what we should, or, or even hot deep heat or whether that might be, and what we should put an ice pack on? That's a great question, Tony. That's an excellent question. And, and again, it's, it's a really interesting one because in the past, we'd always just put ice on, on everything, um, particularly, you know, for acute injuries and, and then maybe heat for some more chronic things that have been around for longer. Um, maybe that sort of muscle soreness that you mentioned. So that we call it delayed onset muscle soreness, which often comes about after doing a bit of exercise and having some lactic acid buildup. Um, what works best? And funnily enough, as you, you probably see, and again, you, you know, um, some of the elite level sports, they have ice bars that they use. Some people recommend spas and things like that. Um, it is a bit of a mix. And so my take on it is what feels comfortable for you. Generally speaking, though, if it's an acute injury, like you've done a muscle strain or you rolled an ankle or you've done something like that, ice is actually really good, not only to help control the pain, which we're finding now plays a big part in it, but also slows that inflammatory process down a little bit. But saying that too, we want inflammation in a sense because inflammation is our body's way of healing. And so we don't want to completely cut it off. We just want to manage it and not let it go, get too excited. So generally speaking to answer your question, I know it's it's hard because it's, um, there's a bit of gray in this yeah. one. Acute injuries, we want generally we would go with ice or something cold or, or compression. Generally compression works much best in fact and then for more chronic muscle soreness and things like that heat and just to throw a cat amongst the pigeons on you too tony some people find going from cold to hot and back again alternating it sort of helps the muscle pump and and the the fluid pump in our body to work to clear away some of that lactic acid too so that in itself is another option as well yeah well then they're great options both of them yeah. massage as an option of uh, controlling our soreness Fantastic. And thousands of years. Milo, back back in 6th century BC, probably had his team of masseuses helping him out during the Olympics as well. And we do still have that now. And it is an excellent, excellent form of therapy. Um, less so particularly for acute injuries, like, like a hamstring tear or something like, or an ankle sprain. You want to try and avoid those sort of things within the, the first sort of two to three days. Um, but definitely after that, and, and for things like feeling sore after you've been training, it's a great recovery tool. And talking of training, I think a lot of the times, particularly us blokes, we think of, oh, I don't want to get a massage, you know, that's that's a bit of a luxurious sort of a thing. But in fact, we need to start thinking of recovery as part of our training. Yeah. And that's a really important part of our rehab or part of our training um, to make sure that we stay healthy and, and able to do the things we love doing. 
there's lots of ways that we can avail ourselves of massage. One mm-hmm. is with a myotherapist. Correct. Then there's also an osteopath. Correct. Who can help out as well. Physios also look after that. Can you explain <laughs> the difference between those three professions? For sure. So it's hard for me to comment too much on the other ones too much because I'll only be able to know what I know. But with myotherapy, so myotherapists are basically remedial massage therapists who have decided to do further training. So extend their training. So you'd almost see them as specialists in their field okay. um, in, in the space of massage and soft tissue injuries. Um, so there's a bit of crossover across all those industries. I mean, as physiotherapists, we, we do some, we do training in that space and we can do that as well. And again, with osteopaths, I believe there's a quite a large manual therapy component as part of their training. Um, in terms of differentiations between the two, the most, the clearest one that I could say to you is that physiotherapists are, are allowed or certified to go work in a hospital setting, whereas I'm not so sure with the other professions, particularly bringing into that chiropractic as well, whether or not they have the capacity to work in hospital settings such as physios. I can speaking just from a physio perspective, yeah. I know our profession is very much evidence based and looking at the research to to guide us in terms of what we do, and so that's something that I'm um, I'm really proud about with the physio industry and what we do. I know we are going to say this and I know what the answer is going to be from you, but I'm not sure whether people are going to listen, but we better say it anyway. Before taking up any really strenuous physical exercise again, we should get ourselves checked out, shouldn't we? Absolutely. So it will be so worth your while to go and speak to someone like a health professional, be it a physio, be it a myo, be it an osteo, be it a chiro, someone who you know and trust, who you, um, you know, will do the right thing by you and have a conversation with them to make sure that you're right before you go back because there'd be nothing worse. And I think um, I was just reading in the, the paper this morning, sadly, um, Clay Thompson mm. is out for another season um, with an Achilles injury. And obviously he's got an amazing sports team behind him and probably less so uh, about sedentary behaviours. But that thing of if we go back now and suddenly go back and, play you know five sets of tennis achilles injuries are a very common injury that occur particularly for middle-aged men or men returning um to sport after a period of uh not not exercising so much and having that that's a six to 12 month proposition to get back to doing what you love you could easily avoid that by slowly building up your um your capacity for exercise well in part sorry go oh yeah and and that and we're, we're here for you for that So in part, you have started to answer the next question that I was going to have for you, and that is what should we focus on in regards to getting ourselves ready for a competitive sporting season again? What people, and predominantly I would say that our listeners are probably that 25 to 54, maybe 65 year age group. Guys who may not have played any sport for six or seven months, we're getting back into it. What are the signs that we should be looking out for in regards to yeah, what we need to get ready before we can actually take the court in anger. Yeah, I think the the range of motion and flexibility that's probably the first areas that I would I would look at. And again, dependent on different activities. So returning to cricket, for example, you mentioned the hamstrings, lower back flexibility, hip movement, hip strength. Um, I'd be looking at that. Um, say then for a tennis player, I might be looking more at shoulders. Um, let's say someone who wants to return to competitive swimming or um, a lot of it, it differs, but 
I would say flexibility and form. So looking at those two factors, uh, particularly if you're in an environment where you've got a coach or someone that can sort of have a look at how you're performing, they can sort of give you a little bit of feedback in terms of that space. And then I would look at then assessing their strength. And a great way to assess strength um, is particularly if you're doing a unilateral sport where you're using one side more than the other, compare the strength across those two sides. And again, there's a lot of tests that we use as physios to, to gauge those. And we call these special tests that we would sort of go through with our, um, our clients and patients. Um, cardiovascular is another really good one to look at. So go for a jog and see what you used to do. So gauge it as a as a pre, let's think about a time when you were feeling pretty good at you were sort of your fighting weight or your yeah. fighting fitness um, and, and look at that as a sort of a bit of a standard to work towards. Um, I want to talk to you about cycling v running or jogging. Preferred? Hmm. Is there a preferred exercise or is it just what you feel better at doing? Um, no, no, I, I wouldn't say there's a preferred. I think that both have excellent benefits. Um, the probably the stand, standout benefit for cycling, particularly for people that are rehabbing and coming back from injury, is the reduced high impact loads that you're you're putting through your joints um, that a bike can allow for. But saying that too, Tony, um, we're finding out more. We used to think that you know marathon running and things like that would be horrible for our joints because it's such a repetitive high impact activity. But what we're actually finding out more about our body and the joint is how amazing it is at compensating and building resilience when we we do an imposed load such as this like a running and an impact and it actually produces um mechanisms such as an increase in synovial fluid in our joints which is actually better for our joints so we're actually finding out now running is actually not bad but it's only when we do things in big spikes so let's say tony if i said tony i want you to go and run a marathon tomorrow You'd probably tell me I was crazy, but that would be bad for you. But if I said, Tony, let's do a marathon in six months time and each day we're going to slowly build up towards it, that will be actually great for your joints yeah. um, in the absence of obviously other co-contributing factors. And so whether we, when we look at when my clients ask me, should I be going running or should I, should I be swimming or should I be riding a bike? It depends on your set of circumstances. So you've got to sort of look at it as a person. And, and so um, if in doubt, always speak obviously with your uh, health professional or seek professional advice. But as a general rule, if you've got some coming back from injury, bike's excellent because it's got low impact and then sort of moving up towards running. But running is not necessarily a bad thing if you're building up nicely. All right. We've got about 90 seconds to go, Ian. Uh, I'm going to hand the ball over to you to give us a final summation of how we should get ourselves ready for that first week of cricket this week or baseball in a couple of weeks or whatever you're doing over the summer. This is what you should be doing. So let's get back to our activity. So if you haven't had the chance to get out in the past eight or nine months and train as much as you want to, start off at about 50%, build up your capacity at about 10 to 20% per week, be it time, be it the number of overs, the number of balls, just set that little goal to keep you motivated. Make sure you write your goals down, celebrate those goals as you go along and have an accountability buddy. But more than anything else, get outside, enjoy the sunshine and have fun over summer. And if you need, we're here for you. And celebrate those goals with a nice cold beer, obviously, would be... Absolutely, exactly. absolutely. And a couple of mates <laughs> for a chat after the game. Absolutely. Ian, thanks once again for your time, mate. Really look forward to catching up again in a couple of weeks' time. Thank you, Tony. Looking forward to it as well.
Ian Tram from Back in Motion joining us here on the A to Z of Men's Health. That's another program done and dusted. Thank you for joining us. And we'll catch you again right here on Good Health Radio or mypodcasthouse.com very shortly.